25. It's talking about where Jesus clears the temple courts. John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Amen. Morning, everyone. Morning, Morning Hugh at home. Thank you for tuning in. I know it's hard to engage and to continue to follow all the way through the service if you're watching on TV, but I encourage you to do that as much as you possibly can. Um, I'm going to pray. And so if you're making a cup of tea, be quick and then come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and for this opportunity that we have. We pray for each other gathered here in the building for a sense of your presence. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our brothers and sisters who are at home watching, likewise connecting in. May they have a sense of your presence and help them and us, Lord, to stay engaged, to connect with you, to listen carefully to what you want to say to us this day. And then, Lord, help us not just to be good hearers, but help us to be practitioners, those who do that which we hear you say to us. So bless us, here and at home, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. We continue to work our way through John's Gospel. This morning's passage <coughs> that that lovely lady read to you is uh, our passage for this morning, the second half of John chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple. A very familiar story to us, one that is disputed in terms of did it happen once or twice? I think, past no, you didn't mention this last week, did you? You will tonight. Uh, most people land on the side of it being two, so that's where I land, and I think that's where Charlie lands. Um, but there are those who think it only happened once. I haven't read anybody who thinks that it happened each year of Jesus' public ministry, but that's also a possibility. But I've never read that. That's just me thinking. Um, here we go. When you think of the Lord Jesus, what picture do you get in your mind? What is he like? That's where the Gospels become so very important for us because they are the historical documents that reveal to us 
the facts of what he is like as a person in terms of, and also in what, what he said, what he did, but in terms of who he is, his true identity and the authority that he has. Um, lots of people have lots of different images. If you look at the four Gospels, Charlie may have done something of this last week. No. Um, let's start with Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is written to the Romans primarily. It's a, a, a Gospel of action, so Jesus is pretty much presented as a servant. He's a doer. He goes from miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle, to action to action to action. It's the Romans and they're soldiers and they're interested in action. Mark tells us very much what Jesus did. The shortest gospel and it's, his favourite word is probably the word immediately and immediately and immediately. It's just this flowing text. When you come to Matthew, which is a little bit more considered, the target audience is probably the Jewish people and the emphasis is upon Jesus as the king. He is the king of the Jews. And Matthew particularly emphasises what Jesus said. In fact, his gospel is arranged around five teaching sections, just like the five books in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses. So Matthew has arranged five teaching sections, sections in his gospel to give the demonstration that Jesus is the prophet who replaces Moses. He's the new leader, he's the king. When you come to Luke's gospel, one of the longest gospel, Jesus is pretty much the son of man. He's the saviour. He's the suffering servant. And Luke gives us a lot of insight into what Jesus felt. In Luke's gospel, he deals particularly with the poor, um, with women, with the disenfranchised, with the servants and the slaves. He's looking for the outcasts of society especially, the lepers and, and tax collectors and so on. That's Luke's emphasis. He's the son of man who came to, um, to serve but to save. When you come to John's Gospel, which is the last Gospel, and it's written decades later, I would believe, John looks back and he writes very differently to the other Gospels. In fact, in John's Gospel, and I know Charlie mentioned this, 90% of John's Gospel is unique to John. Matthew, Mark and Luke have got a lot of stuff that overlaps. They tell similar stories in a similar chronological order and so on. But in John, it's very different. 90% of it is unique to John. The seven I am statements, for instance, in John are unique to him. There are no parables in John's gospel. There are seven miracles, but five of them are unique to John. There's only two that he overlaps with the other gospels with. The longest prayer that Jesus prayed, John 17, is in John's gospel. And John has an emphasis where he's looking upon not just Jesus the man, he is a man, but Jesus was God in human flesh. He's the Son of God. He is God the Son. And he goes out of his way to describe this, both in Jesus' titles and in what people called him, and in, as well as in the things that he taught and sometimes did. In this passage, what he did, he's the Lord. John has an emphasis upon who Jesus is. And just before I go on from here, let me say this. I've said this before over the years. It's a bit like if that's the order of the Gospels and... That's probably correct, but we can't be dogmatic. If Mark's Gospel was written first, he writes about Jesus and he, says, he starts at the baptism of John the Baptist. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Came a, a man um, baptising and that's where Jesus becomes into public view. It begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, certainly his public ministry does. When you come to Matthew, he says, no, 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 Jesus goes back way before that. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. 
Jesus goes all the way back. He's the promised king. He's the son of David. And he is the promised one through our chosen forefather, Abraham. When Luke comes, he writes in Luke chapter 3, no, no, no. Jesus goes further back than that. He's a descendant all the way back to Adam. He calls him the son of God. When you come to John, he says, no, you've got to go back before that. You've got to go into eternity past. He's the word made flesh. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is God with us. So the Gospels have this different emphasis and it's when you put them all together that you get a nice picture of who Jesus is. Well, this passage particularly opens our eyes to who Jesus is and who he demonstrated who he was even to those who didn't believe in him and to those who opposed him. He does it sometimes cryptically, but nonetheless, he does it. Here's an outline of this message this morning. That's not my outline, but that's one outline. The passage tells us about the anger of Jesus, which is surprising, the zeal of Jesus for God's house and God's purposes, and the knowledge of Jesus, that he didn't need anybody to tell him what was in people. He already knew. That's one way you could look at this passage. Another way is there's drama in the temple, Jesus cleanses it, makes a whip, gets rid of all the animals and stuff. There is a new temple, his body. Destroy this temple, three days, I'll raise it up again. Passage ends with Jesus being the searcher of hearts. He knows what's in us and so on. Well, there are three good outlines that I pinched from three other commentators. Somebody had those outlines, they're not mine. Here we go. Let's see what we can learn from this and then I'm going to come to the end and I'm just going to have some questions that I would like for us to think about. One of the new things we've started, uh, you know, well, we have done it before. Gee, there's not much we haven't done. When you've been here for 20 years or nearly 20 years, you've really tried everything, haven't you? <clears throat> um, but Pastor Charlie particularly raised this with me that he's become aware, particularly for our young adults, not just them, you guys too. Put up your hand if you're a young adult. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> that we have so much information coming in that we spend time reading the Bible, but we don't spend a lot of time applying the Bible. What does that say for me to do? We learn it, but we're not doing it. That's a huge generalisation, I know. And so we're concerned to somehow help you become not just hearers, but doers. So now each week, we, Charlie's going to send, he's the leader of our Connect groups, um, he's going to send a series of questions that whoever preaches, if it's me or it's him or if it's a visitor, we're going to ask them to write four questions, which we send to all of our connect groups. If you want to get those, just give him your email or something and he'll send it to you. And I think there are some hard copies available this morning if you want to grab one of those. Just four simple questions. I'll ask a couple of them in the message. and You can take them away and reflect on it and think about it. <coughs> anyway, that's where we're going, so it's important for us to do that. When it was time for the Jewish Passover, John tells us, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And the verse before this, in verse 12, Jesus had gone from Cana in Galilee, the wedding, to Capernaum, headed north. Stayed there a couple of days, and then verse 13, when it was time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. From Capernaum to Jerusalem is a rise of 3,000 feet. 1,000 metres. It's a bit of a climb. It's about 150 k and it's a walk. The Jewish Passover, of course, is the most important uh, uh, festival for the Jewish people, not the only one. They had Pentecost and they had tabernacles, plus they had other ones as well, dedication and Purim and 
what we call Hanukkah, the holidays and so on. John mentions for us that Jesus attended three Passovers. The other Gospels only mention the last one. It's quite possible that Jesus travelled each year to the Passover. He didn't need to in terms of the law. If you lived within 25 k's of Jerusalem, you were required annually to attend the the feast, the festivals. But if you're outside that perimeter, then you had permission to not attend. Jesus, it would appear from the Gospels, went up every year and attended the Passover. Um, There would have been some exceptions to that, of course, when like he was down in Egypt. Um, Just as an aside and a pause, an interesting way to study any of the Gospels, but especially John, is to get a piece of paper and draw four columns on it. Top of this column, where is he? Write down the geographical location. So Cana, Capernaum, Jerusalem, wherever, Samaria, location. Next thing, what he did. He sat in the well and spoke to a woman. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He healed a lame man at a pool in Bethsaida in Jerusalem, and so on. Where he is, what he did, what people said about him, what they named him, what they called him. Some of that's positive, some of that's negative in the Gospel of John. And then associated with that is what did Jesus say about himself? fourth column you'll receive if you do that sort of exercise as you read through the gospel of John then you will be able to grasp the amount of information that John is trying to give us about who he is and why he came so that we can trust in him and believe in him well back to the text it's Passover time millions of people are going to turn up in Jerusalem about three million people each year would turn up in this little city if, as I said, if you're outside the perimeter, if you're overseas, then when you had the Passover festival, as they celebrated worldwide, at the end of it, you would raise the fourth cup and they would have a phrase. They would say, uh, next year in Jerusalem. There would be this hope. It was the lifelong ambition of Jewish people worldwide to at least go once to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Next year in Jerusalem. For us as Christians, we could be saying next year in the Lord's presence that the Lord Jesus would come. It was that same sort of hope. So three million people would attend. Josephus tells us about there would be two and a, about a quarter of a million or nearly three, um, uh, half a million. From a quarter of a million to half a million, lambs would be sacrificed at this time. It's a lot of lambs. Jesus went up to the Passover. The roads would have been crowded. But a month before Passover, the Jewish people were out filling in potholes, painting the tombstones so that nobody would inadvertently touch them and therefore become unclean for the festival. Homes were opened up to visitors who wouldn't charge rent. You were to accommodate the visitors from wherever they came. People brought tents and they would tent around the temple site. There would be thousands of people there. city was crowded. Each one of the pilgrims who went to uh, the Passover to celebrate it would need to bring a sacrifice and they would also need to pay the temple tax, half a shekel. That's where this story kicks in. This is what was going on. In verse 14, we are told, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. In the temple courts. There are four courts in the Jerusalem temple. There's the court of the Gentiles, four acres. So 
you know, multiply our property by, I don't know, four or five times at least. That's the size we're talking about. It's huge. Court of the Gentiles. Then that had steps going up to the court of the women. Then that had steps going up to the court of the men of Israel. And then they had the court of the priests. And then you had the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. So this thing was massive. In fact, King Herod had started a reconstruction in about 1920 BC. And this passage tells us it had been going on for 46 years. It would take another 17 years before it was finished. The providence of God, it finishes about 63-64 AD. And in 66 AD to 70 AD, the Romans come and destroy it. Not one stone left upon another. So 60 plus years of construction... Millions and millions and millions of dollars poured into it for nothing. Which is pretty much where this story is at. It's a theological statement about the Old Testament is passing away and the new is coming. Herod had started the reconstruction process and so he built walls around the temple that Zerubbabel had built and then he backfilled it, he filled that in and he made it 36 acres large. It was huge. Pastor Charlie's been there, you can talk to him about it. This huge area and four acres of that 36 acres was for the court of the Gentiles. Now when the pilgrims went up, they needed an animal to sacrifice and they needed a Jewish coin, a shekel, half a shekel. The Jewish priests would not accept foreign coins, not because they were unclean or because they had images on them. Well, that wasn't the reason. The reason was because other nations would sometimes uh, shortchange the amount of gold or silver that went into their coin. The Jewish people wanted the real thing the true blue. So you need to use our coins. We can verify the legitimacy of them. So you need money exchanges, just like we do if you're going overseas, you need to change your cash, Australian cash, into wherever you're going. And of course there is a, a fee. Not a large fee, just a small fee. But it would turn out if you brought one shekel from any um, Greece and you needed to change that into half a shekel for the temple tax, then the money changers would charge you uh, like a GST amount just to change that. That was the exchange change. And then if you wanted change, well, they charged you for that as well. So they made a little bit of money on the side. And the more that people, more money they bought, then the more money they made. It was a convenience thing. Uh, people travelling from overseas can't take their own animals. They had to be perfect and unblemished. They couldn't take their animals with them all that way and they couldn't get their coins so they had to do it there. So it was a convenience thing. That's how it started out. But then, of course, it turns into a business. It'd be like you coming to church and you don't have your Bible with you or your phones, but we will sell you a Bible as you come in for a slight profit. And you would do that each time. That's not a bad idea, Pete, is it, actually? So there were... They needed an animal to sacrifice and Jesus finds them with cattle. That would be a wealthy person who could afford an oxen or something like that. A sheep or a dove. And the doves particularly were for poor people. And the doves are all in cages. The sheep are there. The cattle are there in the court of the Gentiles being sold. So they're like in yards. And you'd go and pick one out. And the one you picked out then you would take to an inspector a trained inspector, he underwent 18 months training to be able to examine to make sure the animal was perfect. The inspectors was there in case you brought your own cattle, sheep or dove because it had to be without blemish. 
and sure, no, sure, whatever the words are, he would find a blemish. And then he would take the sheep, saying, you can't offer that one, it's, it's not perfect. It's got a cut here, it's got a bruise there, it's got a freckle there or something. So they would take that sheep, which is probably unblemished. So you have to buy one of ours. Slight fee. And then they would take this sheep, which had been rejected, and take it around to the back of the herd and add it to the herd. That sort of distortion and corruption was going on. Um, so what started as convenient, convenience had, in fact, developed into this full-on business. In fact, when Crassus invaded Jerusalem in 54 BC, he took off, back in 1955, this is William Barclay writing this, back in 1955 he took 2.5 million pounds. In today's currency, I'm guessing that's going to be billions of dollars. And it says, and he didn't come near exhausting it. They made a lot of money by this process. So Jesus gets there and he sees this and he is furious. The oxen are bleeding, the lambs are bleh, bleh, and you, it's like if that was going on here and now, you couldn't stand. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is where they would come to be quiet, to pray, to talk to God. But there's all these animals and this bazaar and this sale and the, the exchange rates and you know people yelling and shouting and offering better deals and all of that is going on. So what does Jesus do? Well, he watched and he observed and he stood to the side and then he made a whip. He didn't take a whip with him. With all the animals tied up and stuff, they would undo them, the cords, and they would probably drop them on the ground. He picked them up. He picked some of those cords up. He platted them and he made a whip. Not a whip like we have a whip, you know, not one of those, but more like a cat of nine tails with level, several strands on it or something like that. It wasn't necessarily a long one, but he had a whip and he intended to use it. So he watched, he collected, he platted the whip, and then I don't know if he waved it above his head or all around the side or whatever, but the text says, um, and he drove out all from the temple court. Drove the animals out, the cattle and the sheep and the owners. They went as well. Then when it came to the doves, because if he turned those over, then they would fly away. That wouldn't be fair. So he goes to those who owned the doves and he says to them, take that and get out. So he's not cruel and he's not unjust. And then he makes this statement, stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. My father's house. Not our father's house, my father's house. There's a proof of his identity, of what was going on. And he goes to the money changers and he scatters the coins. And he turns the tables over. What's amazing about all of this is nobody stops him because they know he's right. Jerome made the comment, it wasn't so much that Jesus had a whip, that, that it was more the fiery blaze in his eyes and on his face. He was furious. And it was because he loved God and loved people. It was impossible for him to passively stand by and let this sort of thing go on. They knew they were wrong. That's why they left. When you stop and think about it, Jesus actually shut down the system. Not for long. But there were no animals being bought or sold, so no animals were going to be sacrificed. No money was being exchanged, so nobody's paying a temple tax. There was a period of time when nothing was happening in the temple. He interrupted the financial system. 
majorly, and nobody stopped him. He did it in such a way that the Roman soldiers didn't intervene. So while he's sort of disturbing the peace, he's not disturbing the peace, because the Antonio Fortress is just there above the temple courts. They would be able to see what was going on. They didn't come running down to bring about peace. Well, they were Romans, so maybe they enjoyed it. Maybe they laughed at it or whatever. But no temple guards, no Levitical priests or anybody tried to stop Jesus. They let it happen. It was only later that they approached him to see what was happening. Um, if Jesus looked at our church, this temple, I wonder what he would do. Do you think he'd make a whip? In terms of discipline? Or do you think he would applaud what the Father is doing in your life, your heart, our corporate life? Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep doing it. That's a question we're thinking about. I love this story and I've told it to you before, but there was a pastor named Chuck Smith. I think he's still alive, but he's certainly getting on if he is. And he was the pastor of Calvary Church. He started the Calvary Churches, which are now worldwide. And I think he was in either... Uh, he was in California, but whether it was Los Angeles or San Francisco, I'm not sure, uh, near a beach. And this is back in the 60s, and pe the hippie people and the Jesus people are coming to faith in him, and they started attending the church where he was the preacher. <coughs> and in those days, he used to be in a Presbyterian church, and this beautiful, ornate uh, Presbyterian church which had ornate, beautiful oak uh, pews. And these young people, surfies and hippies and druggies, were getting converted and coming to Jesus and they would turn up with their jeans and their long hair and their studded belts. And Before long, the studded belts were scratching and marking the ornate oak pews. Elders weren't happy. The elders called the pastor to a meeting and they said, this is what's going on. We have, we're to be stewards of this and we need to be looking after this. He, Chuck Smith said, uh, I think I have the solution. So the next day, he, next Sunday, he stands up in the pulpit and he says, you young people coming in here with your studded belts on and scratching the pews and it's inappropriate and it has to stop. There's only one thing that can happen. These pews have got to go. What would Jesus do? Has something got to go for us? Something got to change? What would happen? Well, Jesus made a whip. He changed things. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace, into a Sunday markets. His disciples, in fact, remembered this. They didn't get it at the time. But Jesus is certainly claiming that God is his father, um, that he is God. Years later, they put two and two together. They joined up the dots. And that's encouraging because that happens again in this passage. And there's just a slight indication for us that we don't all get it all at the same time. Sometimes it takes time for the penny to drop. It did for them. And they remembered, oh yeah, Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's what happened for Jesus. Zeal, enthusiasm and passion for God's honour and God's purposes consumed him and it did it ended up killing him what's surprising about this for us with the lord jesus there are three things number one his use of physical force he used a whip he was whipped before he was crucified but he actually made a whip on this occasion right at the beginning of his public ministry 
Some people say, yeah, but there's no record that he actually whipped anybody, that he actually hurt anybody. Yeah, but the intent was there, wasn't it? That's surprising. We don't normally see that. We do see Jesus angry on occasions. Mark chapter 3, there was a time when a guy with a withered hand was in the front of the synagogue and it was the Sabbath and they put him there, the leaders put him there deliberately to see what Jesus would do. They were setting him up and Jesus looked around at the congregation and he was angry because he knew what was going on. He was angry then and he was angry here. Zeal for your house will consume me. So it's surprising, this display of his anger. It wasn't a sin. You can be angry and not be sinning. It's rare for us. But it does happen. That's why we have the emotions. That's why we have the anger. Because we should get angry at injustice. We should get angry at sin and in what it does to people and to relationships. You should get angry at the right things. The way to be angry and not sin is to be angry at nothing but sin. Jesus was angry. And the Revelation certainly talks about the wrath of the Lamb. The other thing that's surprising here is not just his use of physical force or his display of anger, but it's also his attitude of intolerance. In our society, we are being pushed to be increasingly tolerant. Let anybody do whatever they want to do. Don't interfere. Let them do as they wish. But for Jesus, some things are unacceptable. And he acted. Take those doves and get out. That's the wrong use of what should be going on in this place. Jesus stood for truth and for righteousness. So eventually, I think the temple guards or the uh, Levitical guards reported to the temple guards who then reported to the priests or the Sanhedrin and eventually the Jewish leaders came to him. When it says in John's Gospel, the Jews, you should read it as the Jewish leaders. John is not writing, he's not anti-Semitic and he's not writing against all Jewish people, the Jews. He's writing about the leaders and this is just his shorthand way of saying it. The Jews then responded to him, what sign do you show us or can you show us to prove your authority in doing this? Notice that they, um, there's no confession of guilt. They're not after his identity, they're after his authority. Who gives you the authority to do that? It's close to who do you think you are, but it's really... Imagine a thief or somebody doing the wrong thing, breaking into a house and climbing out the window. And then a, a policeman, I'll say a policeman, off-duty policeman, finds them, stops them, and the thief doesn't go, oops, caught. The thief turns around and says, do you have a warrant? Who gives you the authority to stop me doing this? Who do you think you are? He's doing the wrong thing and he got caught. But there's no question of confession or change or any admission of guilt. It's all about, you don't have the right to do that to me. That's what the Jewish leaders are doing to Jesus. Who do you think you are? Do you have a warrant? This is outside your jurisdiction. One commentator said, in Jesus in doing this, he's actually making a claim to be the Messiah. Malachi chapter 3, the Messiah will come to the temple and he will cleanse it. And so the Jew, if that's the case, then the Jewish leaders are picking up on that. You've made a claim to be the Messiah. Give us proof. Show us a sign. The Messiah will do signs. You do a sign. Jesus' answer is insightful. But you've really got to think about it. They don't. But he's really helping them a lot. 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. I'll come back to that. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, to renovate it with Herod and not finished yet. And you're going to fix it up in three days? That's ridiculous. The temple he was speaking about was his body. Jesus said, here is the sign and it's the ultimate sign. It's the most important sign that he ever gives and that we have in the whole New Testament. Destroy this temple. It's almost like Jesus is saying, what sign do you give us? And he says, destroy this temple, pointing to himself. Because he's clearly thinking, and the text actually says he was talking about his body. Destroy this temple. You crucify this one and I'll raise it up in three days. He's giving proof of the power of his resurrection. He tells them ahead of time. So when it happens, it's like, remember I told you? So then you'll get it. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three times. But they're not listening. They're basically not even looking. They're not interested in that. In fact, they're not really even seeking or wanting an answer. They don't argue with it. What do you mean? They don't do that. They simply are dismissive. They argue and dismiss it. Took 46 years. What are you going to do? That's ridiculous. They're thinking physical. They're thinking renovation. Jesus is talking about resurrection. Something very different. That gives us an insight into the Lord Jesus. Because he's basically saying, I'm not going to force myself upon you. You've got to have an open heart and a desire to learn about me. And if you do, then you'll get it. But if you don't, if you've got another priority and focused on other things, then the truth will just sail past you. It'll sail over your head. I'm not going to force you to believe. I'm not going to make you believe. I'm going to offer it to you. And he does the same thing today. So they say all of that. But the temple he spoke about was a temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples record that he had said this, and then they believed the scriptures and the words of Jesus. See, it took them three years before they got it but they got it. So too for us, we're on a journey and it does take time and we learn at our own pace. This verse also says to us beautifully that they believe the scripture. That's always a wonderful day when you get to that point. Then they believe the scripture. Billy Graham had an experience once where he went through a period of doubt and very early on in his evangelistic ministry People were asking all sorts of questions and he couldn't answer them and he wasn't strongly, deeply theologically trained but he wasn't a magnificent evangelist and he knew the gospel. Took his Bible, he went out to the forest one day out into the bush and he put his Bible on a stump and he knelt down and he said, God, I've got so many questions and I don't have answers but from this point on, that book, I believe every word in this book, this is your word and that's what I'll teach. I won't be able to answer all their questions but I will teach your word. And from that point on in his ministry, he would always say, what? The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. It's, that's his ministry. He just pointed people to the text of Scripture. And the day you come to that point where you go, the Bible is God's word. I can trust it. I can rely upon it. If it says it, it's true. It gives you great confidence. It gives you security. It gives you assurance. It gives peace in your heart. Gives hope for the future. And notice they link, they believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had said, they combine the two, that what Jesus said is of the same authority as God's word. Well, if you look at John chapter 2, you see in verse 11, they believed him. Verse 22, they believe the scriptures 
and his words. Jesus is talking about that his body is, the, is God's temple. It's really the real temple. It's God's presence on earth. It's the place where God dwelt. He was Emmanuel, God with us. It's in his body that God became enfleshed, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's in this temple, the body of Jesus, where the ultimate sacrifice for all sin would be made. And then the transition comes. The temple, the old temple is gone. The new temple, Jesus, resurrected from the dead and now his body is now transferred to being us. This is the body of Christ, the church. This is where God dwells among us. And we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. God indwells us if we are believers and God indwells us corporately as we gather together. Jesus says, we're two or three gathered together. There am I in the midst of you. Jesus comes to his temple. When he sees things going wrong, he cleanses it. If he came to our temple, what would he do? If he came to this temple, to you, what would he put his finger on? What would he change? Well, quickly, time's going. While Jesus was still in Jerusalem, he performed many people saw the signs that he did. No details given, whether it's healings, casting out demons, whatever it was, they saw the signs, the miracles, and they believed in his name. At a certain level, they believed. This text will go on to show us that it's not believe in the full sense, as John will use it often in his gospel, to commit yourself to, to rely upon, to believe. For these people, it was like head belief or emotional belief. It was shallow belief. They were attracted by the sensational, the spectacular, the miracles, and their positive response, not rejection, but, oh, wow, that's good. Let's follow him. But it was shallow. And by John chapter 6, these same people will desert him. They'll abandon him. They'll turn away from him. And some of them will even turn against him. That's why John explains for us, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't have faith in their faith, for he knew all people, he knows us. He didn't need anyone to testify about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows us thoroughly. He knows us inside and out. He knows when we're real. When he looked at Nathaniel, he went, here is a true Israelite. This guy's fair dinkum. When he looked at these people who were believing, he went, mm, I don't trust it, I don't believe it. Jesus's, Jesus didn't rely on human approval. He relied upon God's approval. Which is why, when he experienced human rejection, he was able to stay the course. That's where we need to get to. We need God's approval, not human approval. Our reliance is on God, our Heavenly Father. What sign did Jesus give? He gave the ultimate sign, the proof of his Resurrection. That's the ultimate sign. You kill me, I'll be raised on the third day. Remember I said that to you. Do you want proof of Jesus' authority? Study his resurrection. Do you want proof of who Jesus is? Do you want to believe in him? Study the resurrection. Do you want to know if Christianity is true, that it's real, that it's sure, it's reliable? Study the resurrection. There's more evidence for the resurrection the truth and the reality of the resurrection than just about any other historical event. 
God has been overwhelmingly generous to provide us with this evidence. And it's the basis of our belief. Prove the resurrection didn't happen, pack up shop, close the church down. We've been deceived. But it did happen. That's why it's the ultimate proof. That's the sign Jesus gave. What is the Lord's temple? Well, I've told you, Jesus is the the Lord's temple. But then it becomes the church and it also becomes us as individual believers. If this passage tells us what Jesus felt about a building, God's temple, be aware that he's going to think the same thing about his body, the church, and about us as believers. We need to cleanse every sinful attitude. Stop mucking around, stop doing things for convenience, just like they were doing. It's going the extra mile. It's being committed to God, connected with one another, concerned for others. He's looking for that balance. Is there anything in his temple that needs to be removed or cleansed? Well, there's the question. Don't forget to grab some questions. When Jesus inspected the temple, he expected to find the presence of God, conviction of sin, confession. He would be looking for those who were committed to God, to worshipping him and honouring him who would be connecting with one another, who were concerned for the Gentiles. Mark's gospel is the only one who tells us, tells us this. Stop turning my father's house into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you're stopping it. You're stopping the Gentiles coming to faith. That's why he was furious. When Jesus inspected the temple in Jerusalem, he found convenience. He found carelessness, commercialism. Corruption, complacency, loan sharks, and an indifferent leadership. He should have found this commitment to God, connecting with one another, concern for others. That's what he looks for in us. I need to think about this. Let's pray. It's a great passage, Lord. It's your word. And it's a great reminder for us that you are the Lord of the temple and that we are your temple. Fill us with your spirit, control us, remove from our lives anything which is, well, offensive, anything that shouldn't be there, anything that's not right. Can you put your finger in our conscience and just say that? That's what you've got to, I've got to deal with. Oh Lord, for those of us who are just getting it right at the moment, Encourage us. Help us to hear your, see your smile, feel your smile, and to sense your well done, good and faithful servant. Deliver us from being complacent and from coasting. Lord, we want to be committed, connected, and certainly concerned for your honour and glory. Grant this, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.